All right. This morning we're going to continue on and, and look at um, the five souls of the Reformation. And um, remember, the reason why I'm uh, preaching a series like this is because it is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, uh, October 31. 1517 to October 31, 2017. So this is like the anniversary year. It's, it's the year, uh, it's a pivotal uh, year, and it's, of course, it is where Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door of a Roman Catholic church in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, it was a document, as I already said, that ignited the Protestant Reformation. Of course, Protestant means to protest, they pro- he was protesting against the uh, Catholic Church, uh, not everything in the, in the Catholic Church, but just the things that were abu- he saw abusive. And so out of that rose these five solas, and I've mentioned them, sola gratia, sola fide. I'm going to do something a little different today. I'm actually going to use um, some PowerPoint and... Uh, and so if that works, then I'm going to use it. If it doesn't work, I'm just going to... All right, this is not going to be a normal thing for me. I just I thought that some of the stuff that I'm going to look at is a little bit uh, condensed, you know, or uh, thick, and I just wanted for you to do it. So should this be working right now? It is not on. That, that would help, all right? <laughs> that would help. All right, so sola fide is the one we're going to look at today, and of course, sola fide is saved by grace alone, and of course, uh, it's by faith alone. The first one was by grace alone. This one is sola fide by faith alone, and of course, the other ones that are coming are sola Christus in Christ alone, sola scriptura according to scripture alone, and sola de gloria for the glory of God alone. Now today... I'm going to be working really kind of backwards, considering sola fide, and saved by faith alone, and then I'm going to head to some of the things the Catholic Church actually believed on, how one is justified by faith. So, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3, and look at verse number 38. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 38. And as I'm going along, and the scriptures that I'm using, uh, I'd like you to look them up. Uh, Some of them I will have on a slide, but I don't want to get used to depending on a slide and not looking it up in your own Bible. All right, so it says, Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of of the law, and then turn over a chapter to Romans 4, chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. It says, Now, in verse number 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what he what is due. All right, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. All right, so this is um, this is the whole thing about the Protestant Reformation. This actually, this one particular area is one of the most important ones because this is really the cause of the Protestant Reformation, all right? And um, that 
means that there was a couple things happening. The doctrine of justification by faith. The main question, the main question that came up in the Protestant Reformation um, was in the 16th century was how can an unjust person be made right with the perfectly holy and just God and escape his judgment? So, see, that is the question. There was a strong belief that the sinner needed to be saved from the wrath of God and eternal destruction. Now, so the main issue, on, in other words, on what grounds does God declare a sinner just? Right? And then the main cause of the Reformation, is, the material cause of the Protestant Reformation was the doctrine of justification by faith, unmixed with anything else. It was Martin Luther who declared it is the doctrine of justification by faith upon which the church stands or falls. Now, R.C. Sproul uh, said several important things about this. Uh, he's kind of takes all this information that he reads and synthesizes it. And he said that the doctrine of justification involves a legal matter of the highest order. Indeed, it is a legal issue which, on which, of course, the sinner stands or falls. His status before the su- supreme tribunal of God, when we are summoned to appear before God's bar of judgment, we face a judgment based on perfect justice. The presiding judge is himself perfectly just. He is also omniscient. He knows everything. Fully aware of every deed we ever had committed, every uh, thought we ever had, every inclination of our heart, every word we ever spoke. So measured by the standard of his canon of righteousness, we face the psalmist's rhetorical question that hints at this despair and what is this, the despair and what's the question if you lord should mark iniquities o lord who could stand see that's the question the psalmist had and of course the apostle paul brings us the answer to that question in romans chapter 3 verse 10 a very well known passage of scripture there is none righteous not even one so Romans 4, verse number 8 also says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. All right, see, that's the whole point. How are you made right with God? See, that should be the question, is it not? That should be the question all the time, wherever you're at. And, of course, the blessing that would come when you know how a person is right with God is what it says in Romans, and, and it's really quoted from Psalms. You're blessed when you know that the Lord hasn't taken your sin into account, right? Because the problem that we have in God's judgment is our sin. We're under God's condemnation. God commands us to be holy. One, one sin mars that whole obligation and really leaves us naked and exposed before divine justice. Once a person sins at all, a perfect record is impossible. And not only 
that, but our sin has been transmitted to us from Adam. We're born sinners. And even if we could live perfectly after that one sin, we should still fail to achieve perfection. So the problem in our day is that people don't really believe in the wrath of God. They really don't believe in a God of perfect justice. They don't believe in a real hell. They believe many of those things are just fairy tales in the Bible. They're not real. So the message of salvation, for the most part, is that people need to be saved today if they don't believe those things from bad habits or saved from social failure or saved from some addiction or some phobia or some bad relationship. And the list goes on and on. See, that's what they need to be saved from. Well, that's not what we need to be saved from. People are so concerned about their relations, their relationships they have in this world, they're unconcerned really about the relationship they have with a holy God that they're going to have to stand before and give an account of their life. So this is a very important truth, that the Word of God is concerned about the repair of our relationship to God. So that what happened in the Protestant Reformation was actually an explosion over the essence of how a person is made right with God. The reason or the ground in which God declares a sinner just differs radically between, I would say, the Reformed theology and biblical theology and, of course, the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the reasons for that is the Roman Catholic Church really does not have his people read the Bible. All right, that, that is really the big issue. For your information, though, both the Roman Catholic and the Reformed and Reformed theology are concerned about justification of sinners. Both sides recognize that the great human dilemma is how an unjust sinner can ever hope to survive a judgment before the court of an absolutely holy and absolutely just God. Now, how they arrive at the justification of a sinner is drastically different. All right? That's the thing. We may use the same kind of words, but we have different definitions. So when someone asks you what the main difference between what your church teaches and what Roman Catholics teach, well, this is it. Uh, It is this whole sense that I've been talking about. And, of course, the Roman Catholic view of justification would be uh, this, that a person is saved by grace that they're saved through faith, and that they're saved because of Christ. Now, uh, it may come to a surprise to you, but the Roman Catholic Church do teach faith is a prerequisite, the foundation, the root of justification, that grace grace is needed for being justified before God, and that Christ is needed for justification. But what the Roman Catholics do not believe, and I mentioned it already, is that they do not believe, number one, that it is by grace alone 
that it is through faith alone, and that, of course, it is by Christ alone. So that means that the Roman Catholic formula for justification is really this. By grace plus merit, through faith plus works, and by Christ plus inherent righteousness. Now, that's what they hold to and believe. That's how a person becomes right with God. Now, what I would like to look at now, before I pick this up again, is what is the biblical view of justification? What was it about the Reformers that they were so upset about in, on this issue of being justified before God? All right, well, they were upset about this very thing here. This is the wrong way to go about being justified by God because it is not a biblical way, All right? So let's go and examine the biblical way. And that's what I want to look at quickly now, not all. And, of course, what, it, what it, it, the Reformers says that we, we have no works, we have no merit, we have no inherent righteousness uh, to bring before God. And so that simply means this, that the Reformers for justification of a sinner for them was by God's grace alone, uh, of course, received through faith alone, and of course, because of Christ alone, and of course, based on Scripture alone, and to the glory of God alone. So the Reformer called the church really backed to a true biblical gospel of salvation. In fact, one of the goals of Martin Luther during the Reformation was to get the word of God from the Latin to German. Of course, that was the native language, but nobody had the Bible in German. So he knew, though, when he put the language of the people into their hands, they would sever from Rome, and that's exactly what they did. And so that severing from Rome in Roman Catholicism has happened ever since. That's why we have Protestant churches, all right? We're still part of that vein in which we looked at the Bible and we says, no, that's not the way you're made right with God. The Bible says this is how you're made right with God, all right? And so we would have to break with them. And of course, the key is scripture. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that's the catechism really of uh, the Westminster uh, Presbyterian Church, uh, where they say this, and it's, it's a good statement. They said, it says, uh, the, the Shorter Catechism proclaims that justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now, in that statement, there's really two pieces to the justification of sinners. The first piece is, of course, uh, justification of sinners is that of the pardon of all sins. Now, again, if you're in Romans, look at Romans chapter 4 and verse number 7 and 8. Again, I want to just reiterate this passage Right, because here it does speak about the pardon one has, that the believer receives a clean slate, 
where condemnation is no longer possible. And if it says this, blessed are those in verse 7 of Romans 4, whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now that is the blessing of someone who realizes that they are justified before God. All right, like Romans 8.1 tells us, for there is what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. All right, a second thing out of that statement is that of a right standing, having a right standing before God. This is the second piece, and that is accepted as righteous before God. In other words, when God looks upon you as a sinner and you have been now justified by faith in him, then God sees something quite different than just your sin. Matter of fact, he doesn't see your sin at all. He sees something else on your account. Now, in other words, this right standing becomes ours through Jesus Christ, whom God has made our sin and in whom we become the righteousness of of God. Now, several scriptures bear uh, this very important truth out. One of them is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You know this one well, you should. It says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So in other words, something has to be done for us and accomplished for us before God can, can declare anyone righteous before God the Father. We will have a righteousness, if we believe this way, that will be judgment-proof. In other words, when you stand before God, declared righteous by God, then the judgment has already been taken care of, and so you're not under God's judgment. So both these pieces not pardoned before God, and a right standing before God are rooted right smack in the work of Christ. Now, the first Adam failed. The second Adam was victorious, right? The second Adam is Jesus. Jesus is not only the second Adam, but he is also the last Adam. And the last Adam, when confronted with temptation, and the choice to obey or disobey the Father, he obeyed. When Christ obeyed, he obeyed the law of God perfectly. He offered himself an atonement, substituting himself for us under the curse of the law. He became a curse for us. And Jesus Christ, the second Adam, because he was obedient even unto death on the cross and won victory for redeemed sinners, that the first Adam was unable to do, unable to attain. In fact, uh, right there back in Romans, if you want to go back there, again, I want you to notice in Romans chapter 4 and verse number 25, and then in chapter 5 of Romans at verse number 1 and 2, it says this. In chapter 4, verse 25, he, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions, right, and was raised for our justification. Verse number one of chapter five, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So in all those passages of Scripture, in this passage, notice that in verse number 25 of chapter 4, it is the resurrection that justifies Jesus Christ as one counted righteous before God. In other words, God the Father accepted the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And how do we know he accepted it? He rose from the dead. He defeated Satan and death. Death could not hold him down. So we are justified and counted as righteous also before God only because we are now viewed by the Father as in Christ. In Christ in which way? In his death, in his obedient walk, and in his resurrection. So so we're viewed by the Father in that way. It was Sinclair Ferguson who says, we are as righteous before God as Jesus Christ himself is, because it is in him and with his righteousness that we are righteous. Our righteousness is his righteousness, and his righteousness is our righteousness. So then, Christ's ground our, or so then really Christ grounds our pardon by bearing our guilt and punishment and he grounds our right standing before God by providing his own perfect obedience and his own perfect sacrifice on our behalf for all those who would believe now all this is good but it really it is it's really the facts of what God's done that has to be appropriated by faith Right? You can even assent to those facts and not be a believer. Right? You have to believe it by faith. All right? So here it is, by, by faith alone. Now, however, we are not justified on the basis of faith itself as a grounds of justification. Faith is the instrument. See, Christ is the proper object of our faith. Again, Sinclair Ferguson said, faith is receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness. So, again, as it says in Romans 3, verse 23, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. And then again in Romans 3, 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, this is the verse I started out with. And so, since indeed God will justify the, it says in Romans 3.30, circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Well, so what then is saving faith? Saving faith is really a faith that puts no reliance on self, right? A biblical saving faith excludes even the possibility of boasting. Now, look at your Bibles in Romans chapter 4 in verse 2 and 3. Notice what it says there in that passage. And, of course, Abraham is the subject here. In verse number 2 of Romans 4, it says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3, For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, 
and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So in other words, Abraham, by faith, trusted in the promise of God. And the promise of God would that God would give him a seed that would be a blessing to all the nations. Now, of course, remember, Abraham was really old. Sarah was old. To have a child at his age, at, at her age, is all, it's, it, it is impossible. But, only, but God promised he would do that, right? And he told Abraham, look at the stars. Count them. Can't do it, right? There's too many. He says, I'm going to bless you and give you a seed, and all the nations will be blessed, and the multitude that comes to be blessed will be innumerable. So, see, saving faith puts no reliance on self. Also, saving faith makes no self-contribution. There's nothing we could do to add to what God has done. There's nothing we can contribute to it. Nothing, not one thing, right? Romans 4 and verse 16, it says, For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. So now remember that grace is that unmerited favor given to people who do not deserve it. And so the next thing is that saving faith has an object. This is not a blind leap in the dark. Right? Christianity has nothing to do with that kind of foolishness. Right? In Scripture, saving faith has an object. It is not faith that saves, but faith in Christ that saves. All right? So we're, we're trying to make distinctions here. And then also, saving faith has three dimensions according to the Reformers. Number one, it involves knowledge of God in Christ. You have to have a knowledge of God in Christ to be able to understand what God has done, right? And then secondly, once you have that knowledge of God and in, of, of Christ, what Christ has done, right, it compels, you're compelled by the truth of the gospel to do something, all right? Um, the gospel's preached to you. You realize that it is Christ is the only way to be saved, to be made right with God. And so now you're left to do something, right? You're left with this understanding. Now, a, a, a third thing the Reformers said is that there is also an irresistible consent to that truth. All right? In other words, you can reject the gospel. You can reject Christ a hundred times. But there's that one time that it all comes together. The Spirit of God convicts your heart, makes you alive, and then all of a sudden, what do you have to do? You are irresistibly drawn to believe. All right? You can no longer fight against it. You are now, uh, you come in and you believe. And how do you do that? You do that by faith. That, so that means the bottom line is this, that saving faith is a gift of God, all right? Now, I do want you to turn to this passage. Look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 29. Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 29. And notice what it says there. And I, what I'm, I'm stressing here that salvation is a gift of God. And remember, the very definition of a gift is you can't work for it. You cannot pay for it. You take it. You receive it, right? 
So look what it says in Philippians 1.29. For to you it has, been, it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So in other words, that what God has given you has been granted to you. It is something that, and what has been granted to you? To believe in him. That's what has been granted to you. That is the gift that has been given to you. And of course, the passage of scripture I looked at last week, the, the one that we all know, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a what? A gift of God. All right, and it's a gift of God that we can't boast. There's nothing we can claim. There, there's no contribution we could give. There's, there's no reliance on the flesh or on whatever we can do. So, see, that is really justification by faith is received by a, uh, is actually received, given to us, and we receive it. Now, God gives us faith to believe, but it is exercised by us, not by him. It's not God believing for us. We're believing. In fact, uh, we, not God, are the ones who believe. All right? that, this is true of all of us. See, we come to the place where we, as it says in Romans 10, we confess him with our mouth and believe him in our heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. See, there's this... something going on in your heart, it has to come out of your mouth. I'm confessing Christ because I now believe he's the only way, the truth, and the life. All right, now something does, there is a little bit of a monkey wrench in this. You know what the monkey wrench is? Let's take our Bibles for a minute and turn to James chapter 2. All right, here's the monkey wrench for, it's not a monkey wrench because we're going to solve it. All right, in other words, what about the other passage? What other passage is the question? Well, I'm glad you asked that because the passage is found in the epistle of James in chapter 2, verse 24. And this is where part of the controversy lies. Look what it says in James 2, 24. You see then, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Is that a problem? Well, what do we do with a verse like this? What do we do with this whole chapter? Well, we examine the context to see if James is saying the same thing the Apostle Paul has been saying, or is he saying something different? Is he contradicting Paul, or is he complimenting Paul? See, that's what we have to ask, because James is before Paul, right? So James is really making a contrast in this passage. Now, I want, to look, I want you to look closely at this passage. James chapter 2, look closely at it. James is making a contrast between two different people. All right? Both say they have faith and are professed believers. All right? Both say they have faith and are professed believers. Right? Well, the professed, professed believer number one Let's examine his professed faith. It notice in several passages. First of all, his faith is without deeds. Verse number 14, it says this of James chapter 2. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith 
save him? And then look at verse number 20 of chapter 2. But are you willing to recognize, oh foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? All right, so he is doing something here. He's saying, first of all, this first person says they have faith, but it has no deeds connected to it. Second thing, he makes a contrast of this person's faith. In verse number 18 of chapter 2 of James, all right, and he says this, but someone may say, well, say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. All right, so a second thing is that he's contrasting that there are two ways to look at this faith that saves or not or doesn't save. And then a third thing he's doing with this person is in verse 17. His faith is unaccompanied by action. Notice it says in verse 17, even so faith if it has no works is dead, being by itself. So this person says they have faith, but there is no work. So therefore, their faith is dead. And then a last thing in verse 24 is that his faith is isolated from any deeds. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. All right, here, there, it's isolated from deeds. Now, that, this becomes very important. Because let's look at the second believer. All right, this believer number two, verse number 18, go to James chapter two. His faith is shown by what it does. It says, I will show you my faith, how? By my work. And then a second thing about this man is that his faith is accompanied by actions. Verse number 21 and 22 of James two. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar, and then verse 22, you see that faith was working with his works as a result of the works faith was perfected. In other words, Abraham did have faith, all right? His faith in the promise of God happened before he did anything, right? So the faith, the justifying faith came first. And then, of course, this person's faith is consummated by his actions. Look at verse number 23 of James 2. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So in other words, in his believing God, before anything was ever done, before he offered up his son, he believed God's promise. And at that point of belief, he was justified and made right before God. Remember, Abraham is before the law. He's before Moses. All right, so that means that this is a, the way a person becomes a believer. And you know what? Is this strange to what the apostle Paul said in his epistle of Ephesians? No, actually, it complements it. And why does it complement it? Because James is not really contradicting what the Apostle Paul was saying. He's complimenting what he, what he is saying. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, the, the passage that I've been reading uh, to you also has this passage after where it says that you are, in verse number 8, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for 
We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now we have good works. After salvation, after being justified. All right, so there's something that I think we have to make sure that we don't mix up in our minds. And that's the whole point of justification and sanctification. And so... And if you mix them up, then, and I believe that's what happens with the Catholic Church, they, they mix it up. And so justification and sanctification really should be understood within their own theological context. In other words, they are different sides of the same coin, all right? Justification is heads, and sanctification is tails, but the same coin. Sanctification should be understood in connection with or two, justification, when one becomes a Christian, the first thing that it takes place is that they are justified. That is, a person is pronounced just by God. Then what happens? They're indwelt, or at the same time, with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit begins the gradual process of sanctification, which will take place for the duration of the Christian's earthly life. Change starts to happen in the believer. In fact, it starts the instant one is, a person is justified, but it is not completed until the believer is re- received into glory. And that's what Paul said in Romans 8, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Sanctification can also be understood as being cleaned up by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is cleaning up the believer. He's setting them apart unto God. He's making changes in the believer's daily life, bringing them into conformity to God's will and to the image of Christ. And then sanctification is really conformity to righteousness. This conformity happens from the inside out. Christians are changed from the inside out. Also, God wants to see fruit and what the Spirit of God is doing on the inside. So the goal of the Christian life is righteousness, holy living, godliness, all the same thing. All right? That's the goal. That's what God does on us uh, once we are justified. This, This is what takes place immediately afterwards. And so the example in our text, Abraham being the example, was considered righteous when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Was not Abraham, it says in verse 21 of James chapter 2, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? All right, in other words, he believed God's promises before he offered his son as good works before God. All right, so he believed God and it resulted in doing something. Now, what's the point of James' contrast? Well, it's this that faith by which a person is considered righteous before God will always, will always be fulfilled by that person's acting in a righteous manner, by that person doing good works. All right, so we are justified, and the fruit of justification is works. Good works that God gives us to do. Now, 
that in a kind of a nutshell is really the biblical view, the reform view on justification. Now, how a person is made right with God is by faith alone. Now, let me go back and pick it up and just give you some quick things just to put in your mind to see the things that the reformers grappled with and we still grapple with today as far as what is the difference between Reformed theology and Roman Catholic theology. Well, here's the first thing, is this. That Roman Catholic, uh, the Roman Catholic instrument for justification is, first of all, the first plank is the sacrament of baptism. All right? Now, baptism is is the instrument God uses to cause justification. At baptism, one gets an infusion of divine grace in the soul. You keep this grace until you commit a mortal sin, at which time the grace is killed or destroyed. But that does not mean you go back to baptism. Instead, you do penance, which is, of course, the second plank. All right, the plank is that of penance. All right, now what is this? That justification then is acquired instrumentally through the sacraments. The giving of indulgences, which, linked, uh, which is linked to this sacrament of penance, because the Catholic Church believes that they were given the power of the keys of the kingdom, And because of this, where it says, like in Matthew 16, 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So they have this sacrament of penance. Now, what is this? Well, it's broken down like this, that a a penitent sinner, in their use of the keys of the kingdom, would do several things. First of all... uh, they would, number one, confess to a priest. And then, secondly, the priest would give absolution to the sincere penitent. All right, then the penitent would do penance. All right, and uh, then that would be what they call the work of satisfaction. It's a kind of work, Uh, Either they would uh, be given a simple Hail Mary to uh, recite or an Our Father or to do some alms to the poor or giving alms to the working of the church. Whatever it may be, these were works of satisfaction uh, performed by the penitent who would earn at that point what is called merit, all right? Now, of course, what I'm saying to you right now, um, most Catholics couldn't even tell you what they believe. You know why? Because they're not even taught this. I mean, I, I was through catechism classes, and I didn't know any of this stuff. Uh, I learned all this stuff after conversion because I wanted to know what I was supposed to believe. And so when I realized all this, I just, it just confirmed that they did not hold really to uh, the alone, the solas of the Reformation, and therefore they add things for a person to become a believer. Now, so what happens is that the church would then grant them indulgent, an indulgence because the church has the power 
to transfer merit to a person's account, all right? And so when that was happened, in other words, if God saw fit, he would grant a grace-induced merit to the penitent, and he would restore the penitent back to a state of justification. So that means there, in the Catholic view of things, there is called a treasury of merit. All right, now, this, this would be kind of like extra good things or, uh, that people would do that would be more than they need to be justified. All right, so the works of satisfaction performed by the penitent would earn the penitent merit. And what merit from where? Well, there would be merit from uh, of Christ, merit from Joseph and Mary, merit from the saints, right? And, of course, there would also be excessive merit offered to them. In other words, people have in their life accumulated works above and beyond their call of duty. So now it goes into the treasury of merit and that people now could receive merit from that treasury based on their penitent uh, works where they would do whatever the priest asked them to do. All right, now, this is basically what they are saying about how a person is finally made right with God. All right, now, this means that when a person dies, and this is where it gets very confusing, that if a person dies, if they die, if they die with mortal sin, then... Uh, that means the baptismal grace of the washing away of original sin was killed, then they go to hell. All right, if they die with mortal sin and they receive the sacrament of extreme unction, then they may go to purgatory for some time and have their impurities purged. All right, and of course, if they die with any impurity short of mortal sin. Their soul goes to purgatory where the dross is purged. You can't get to heaven until you're purified. That's what they would tell us. All right, so that means uh, if true righteousness in hers or is accumulated in the person, God declares that person just. They can go directly to heaven. However, very few people go directly to heaven. They go to purgatory first. So Martin Luther saw in all this a radical distortion of the doctrine of justification and the suffering of the merit of Christ as the only grounds for someone's justification. Do you see when you move away from Scripture how confusing it gets? It's completely complete confusion. So that means this, that the bottom line is the Catholic, Roman Catholic's basis for justification is a sinner is justified on the basis of inherent righteousness. God examines the person, and if he sees that person is uh, to be righteous, They've accumulated inside themselves a internal righteousness. He declares them righteous. 
but people need the help of faith and grace and Christ accomplished through infused righteousness. So that means it's going to be grace plus merit. Secondly, it's going to be uh, through faith plus works. And then, of course, thirdly, it's going to be by uh, Christ plus the sinner's contribution of inherent righteousness. So that's what actually equals justification. Not in Christ alone, not apart from works, not apart from any accomplishment or anything we could add to it. So you could see that this way of justification does not match what the Bible says about justification. So that means this, that the reformers or the scriptures and reformers' basis of justification, again, is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And of course, that means this, the only grounds in which God declares anyone just is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. That's the only way, all right? That his atonement, in his atonement, he bears the burden of our guilt. In his perfect, righteous life, he perfectly fulfills the law. So faith, then, is the instrument in which we embrace Christ. The moment we trust Christ, the Father transfers, imputes, counts, reckons the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our count by faith. So that a believer, believers really are not clothed before God in their own inherent righteousness, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ by which they are accepted in the beloved. So, that's what I actually just said, but this thing illustrates it that what happens there is that our Christ's righteousness is put on, uh, transferred to our account, all right? And then here it's our sin, our sin debt is canceled in Christ. And so that, that's really what it is to become a Christian, is that when we believe in Jesus Christ, apart from anything we could ever have done to, to receive the gift, is that when we're justified, God takes our sin, puts it on Christ's account, right? He takes his righteousness and he puts it over you. So when God the Father looks at you, what does he see? He sees, he sees Christ's righteousness. He doesn't see sin. There's no grounds for judgment anymore. He just sees Christ's righteousness. Therefore, you are made right with God and accepted in the beloved, accept it in the presence of God. In other words, Luther says that you have been saved with an alien righteousness, all right? A righteousness not performed by you or me, but a righteousness performed by someone else apart from me, and that was Jesus Christ. So the bottom line was this, and here's the huge difference, and this is what Sproul concluded. He says this, that here's the, the huge difference between both views of justification, scriptures uh, and reformers, and of course the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman, uh, the reformers believe that God calls us, or you and me, just before we're made just 
Therefore, we produce good works, right? On the other hand, Catholic Church is made just by the sacraments before they are declared just. So that means their justification has to come from themselves, not from God. Now, I think that when you look at it like that, uh, actually what it does is it distorts the cross. It says the cross did not have the power, and Christ did not have the power to fully save. We need something else. We need something more. We need additional things, all right? And, of course, that is not true scripturally. So the Bible teaches that no person naturally possesses the standard of righteousness that, that God demands. However, in his gracious plan of salvation, God himself supplies the righteousness to satisfy his holy character. And when a person accepts by faith the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, God imputes the righteousness of Christ to the believer. And then what happens to the believer? They can actually be happy. They can be actually joyful. Why are they joyful? Where, where Paul says in Romans, just as David also speaks of the blessing on a man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are you. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Who is that man? Who is that person? It's the person who believes in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That's who receives that. So imputation, the imputation of Christ's righteousness results in justification before God's law court, that Christ's death means the Christian believer will not be condemned at the time of God's judgment of all people. And the Bible teaches that the horrific effects of the imputation of Adam's sin to our account are completely reversed for people who believe in Christ. And the imputation of human sin to Christ makes possible the imputation of his righteousness to the believer. All right. You can see why I wanted to use some of these. It's a little overwhelming. And I wanted to give you it, instead of three messages, one. So I crammed it in there. But just to give you a sense that there is a huge difference between what the Bible teaches about how to be made right with God and what other religions and the Roman Catholic Church has not changed their position till this day. They still believe the same thing. So you know what also it shows us? We need to examine ourselves. Uh, make sure that you're in the faith. Make sure that you have truly trusted in Christ alone and you're not trusting something else. And make sure that you profession of faith in Christ is proved by the fruit of good works, right? If you say you have, I'm going to say what James says, show me, right? If you say you have works, then you have to show me your faith. But faith in Christ alone comes first, and then the fruit of real faith is good works, right? That it's automatically going to come. God's going to use you. But if somebody says, I've been, I've been saved 20 years, well, where's your, where's your works? 
that prove you've been saved for 20 years. Well, I haven't really gone to church. I don't really read the Bible. Um, you know, I'm just a kind of a religious person. I'm my own because religion is private. You know, all that stuff. People say, right? Well, no. You need to say what James says to them. If you say you're a believer, where's your works for the past 20 years? Where's your faith in walking with God? What are you going to offer the Lord when it comes to the beam and see judgment? And God says, okay, after conversion, what have you done for me? What are you going to offer him? See, on both sides, we have to really look at our life. Are we really genuine believers? And have we not only a desire to love Christ, but to serve him? And service is going to be part of works. And of course, we mean works and be as basic as giving a cup of cold water to someone who needs it. But you're different. You're changed. You're living for God. You're free to live for God. That's what the difference is between a believer and an unbeliever is. And so, therefore, we have to have both. You say you profess Christ. Let me see it. What are you doing? Where are you serving? Where are you using your gifts? See, that's going to be the question. So what Paul was teaching us is justification by faith alone. What James was teaching us is this. If you're justified by faith alone, then you're going to have fruit that proves it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this day and for all that you've done. I pray, Lord, that you would take these things and you would impress them upon our mind and heart so we would realize that when we come to the Word of God, the Word of God truly does give us an understanding More than anything else, these things I've written unto you that you may know you have eternal life, that you want us to know, not hope so, not with a bunch of doubt behind it, but you want us to know that we have eternal life, and that confidence in belief comes because we believed in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who came to accomplish what the first Adam could not accomplish, to live in a perfectly obedient life, to die as the perfect sacrifice for sin, to defeat sin and death, to raise, be raised up from the dead, and in his resurrection, because all the work has been done, that when someone comes and believes in Christ by faith, they are justified on the spot, and they, from that day forward, will live for you and will produce in their life fruits of real conversion. Please, Lord, allow us to examine ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. And if we are, I pray that we would be like that man in Psalms. We would be happy that you don't use our sin against us or can use it in a court, your court of law because it's been covered by Christ's blood. It's been sent away. And now the Father sees the righteousness of Christ on our account, and no longer our sin. Thank you for that. And I pray that you just bolster our faith by these truths also, to know that we may know what we believe. In Christ I pray. Amen. Let's stand.